If you've got your Bible, I hope you do, turn with me to Luke 19. Luke chapter 19. Before we get into that, let's pray though, okay? Father, we praise You. We honor You. You are holy. You are worthy. You are infinite in Your perfections. You are all good all the time. You are all powerful. You are our creator. You are our sustainer. And you are our Savior. You have spoken to us through your word. It's through your word that your Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins and enlightens us and teaches us the truth. Your Spirit uses your word to produce repentant, contrite hearts that please you. So we come to it now. We come to your word. And we do so dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We do so dependent upon Your grace and mercy. We ask, Father, that You might use Your Word to convey to us Your truth. Speak to Your people, Father, and sanctify us by it, that we might entrust ourselves to Jesus and glorify Him. Amen. Amen. The Word of God is truth, so Luke 19 is where we are, and we come today to what, for many of us, is probably a very familiar episode in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and it's probably, and I may be dating myself here by what I'm about to do, but it's probably not because you know these verses by heart or even know where this story is in Scripture. It's probably because of a song that many of us learned as children in church. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, and as the Lord passed by that day, he looked up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. I'm going to your house today. Many of us will never get that tune out of our heads. I apologize if you will have that tune in your head for the rest of the day. But that song leaves out the best parts, actually. So let's read the best parts. Let's read Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. He, he being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Maybe you know that last verse. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save 
that which was lost. That is the best part of this. That's the best part. In fact, if you wanted one sentence to summarize the reason for which Jesus came, the reason for which God left heaven and took on flesh and dwelt among men and suffered and died, it is so He could seek and save that which was lost. You'd be hard-pressed to come up with a clear, more succinct purpose for why Jesus came. The greatest news that could ever be is that God, in His sovereign grace and abounding mercy, has chosen to save. He has chosen to rescue sinners. God has chosen, in the words of the Apostle Paul, to transfer us out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. God seeks sinners. God seeks sinners. Because as we read in Romans 3.11, as we read in Psalm 14, there is no one who seeks after God. In our natural condition, our natural condition is we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what Ephesians 2 verse 1 says. That means that we don't in and of ourselves seek after God. Our seeking of God is because He seeks us first. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us as we're about to see that would call somebody to seek after God because it is not in us to do that. There's none who seeks after God. So God seeks sinners. God seeks sinners. So He sent His Son and Jesus did not come to give you your best life now. Jesus did not come so you can feel better about yourself. Jesus did not come to enlarge your territory. Jesus did not come to enlarge your bank account. He didn't come to unlock the key to God's favor coming down upon you. That's not what Jesus came for. Jesus did not even come to be a good teacher or a moral leader. Now that is a popular teaching. It's been a popular teaching amongst those who would classify themselves as theologically liberal Christians for well over a century now. And of course, Jesus was and and still is, I would say, a good teacher, a moral leader. But that's not why He came either. Even Muslims could say that He's a good teacher and a moral teacher, a moral leader. But that's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And we have to define that, and we're going to. He being God became a man to save men. Jesus came to save sinners. That's what the angel told Joseph. You know, we're going to be getting, you know, Walmart has the Christmas stuff out. It's less than three weeks until Hallmark does nonstop Christmas movies until January. Okay? That's what the angel told Joseph. By the way, I watch a lot of that stuff, so I'm not joking. I'm not. That's what the angel told Joseph. Before Jesus was even born, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is it's Yeshua. It's Yahweh saves is his name. John writes this. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. 1 John 3, 5. And then 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is a, that, that's the New Testament. And it's a huge part of the Gospel of Luke as well. 
And perhaps most clearly we see this back up a few chapters in chapter 15. The parable of the lost sheep in which the shepherd leaves the 99 to go and to take care of the one that is lost. And then he rejoices with his friends and family. They, they party. Okay? Then there's the, right after that in Luke 15 is the parable of the lost coin where the woman scours her house. She searches in and out. She's sweeping. She's doing everything she can to find the lost coin. One out of ten that she had. And so when she gets the lost coin, she rejoices and throws a party with friends and family. Probably spends more than the one coin was worth. Such is the rejoicing. And then, of course, after that is the parable of the lost son. We call it the parable of the prodigal son, usually. He abandons his father. He comes back shamed. He comes back destitute. He comes back repentant. And his father does what? He runs to the son to restore the son. And this is a picture of God's love, the father's love in sending his son to seek and save us. I'm not going to spend all my time on Luke 15, but there we read, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's what the Pharisees say in a derisive tone. And yet Jesus responds, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 so-called righteous persons, and the so-called is mine, who need no repentance. Why? Because there is none righteous, no not one, and we all need to repent. Okay? And most recently... I guess, what, four weeks now, at the end of chapter 18, we saw outside of Jericho, Jesus restores the sight of the blind man. So now we're in chapter 19, and we find Jesus passing through the first century city of Jericho. He's on His way to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, He's going to be tried, and He's going to be arrested, He's going to be beaten, He's going to be crucified. His blood is going to spill there. He knows what's coming. He knows what is waiting for Him. But He's doing this so that all who believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jericho, just talk about that for just a second, for what it's worth is described by the first century historian Josephus as the richest part of Israel. It was a little paradise because there were some nearby springs that provided water that made the soil very fertile. It it made Jericho a thriving city, a prosperous city, and that was very good news for the man we meet in verse 2, a man by the name of Zacchaeus, the small sinner Zacchaeus. And what do we know about him other than he's the subject of a song? We know that he was the chief tax collector. And because he was the chief tax collector, that means that he was rich. And when I say rich, that's an understatement most likely. This guy was probably rolling in it because if Jericho was prosperous and if this is where uh, Zacchaeus was based, this is where he lived, he was probably raking in the cash, so to speak. Because as the chief tax collector, that means he was the head of the region's tax collectors. What that meant is that all of the tax collectors from that region would pay him a percentage of what they brought in. So he was extremely rich. Probably the most well-off and most well-known sinner in town. And I add that last part, that he was a sinner, because even though he was well-off in an earthly sense, he would have been viewed by both religious authorities and by common people as a reprehensible human being. A wretch. 
And to know that, you have to know something about tax collectors in Israel. Now, the IRS has a bad reputation amongst most people today. They've got nothing on tax collectors in first century Israel. Because what these people were, they were Israelites who the Roman Empire hired to collect taxes from all of the other Israelites. And they would give them an amount of, of money they were supposed to collect. And anything above and beyond what they collected, they got to keep. So the tax collectors were motivated to basically put one over on every single Israelite they came in contact with, who they collected taxes from. And let's just say they were known for lining their pockets off of the backs of their fellow Israelites. And as a result, they were hated. They were despised. There's a reason why in the Gospels we read the Pharisees talk about tax collectors and sinners. They were the, considered the worst of the worst. And they were cut off from social relationships. They were barred from worshiping in the synagogue because they were considered unclean. And in a way, these tax collectors would isolate themselves from the rest of the world for the sake of the riches they would accumulate, for the love of money. The only other tax collector in the Bible that is named is Levi, or, or Levi, Matthew is, is, is how we know him. Now, last time we were in Luke together, we saw how when Jesus restored the sight of the blind beggar, Luke doesn't name him, but Mark does. If you recall that, his name is Bartimaeus. And he's probably named because he was well known in the early church. And I suspect we have Zacchaeus' name here for the same reason. Indeed, the, the, the church tradition is that Zacchaeus became a companion of Peter. And that Peter eventually named him one of the elders of the church in Caesarea. But we're not there yet. Zacchaeus is not, not anywhere close to that yet. As Jesus is passing through Jericho, Zacchaeus is a very rich chief tax collector. He is Jericho's most notorious sinner. He is despised by the community. But as we see here, he is beloved by the Lord. Now look at verse 3. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. It's an interesting way to phrase that. He was trying to see who Jesus was. And it's, it's kind of a shocking thing to read, really, considering who was being talked about. The question we have to ask is, why is he trying to see who Jesus was? And it's really there's really only one answer I can come up with, and it's a dissatisfied heart. A, dis, a, 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 a dissatisfied heart. Because for all his money, for all his ability to accumulate more money, and in this prosperous, in this fertile city, money wouldn't fix what Zacchaeus knew he was missing deep down. All of his earthly riches did not fill his most pressing, fundamental need. Zacchaeus had a dissatisfied heart. So when he heard Jesus was there, he wanted to see Jesus. And I believe he was aware uh, it was Jesus because of what the text says. It doesn't say he was trying to see who it was or who was at the center of the crowd. He was trying to see who Jesus was. He'd no doubt heard about Jesus. Jesus' name was on the lips of first century Israelites. He had healed the sick. He had given the blind their sight. He had fed thousands on just crumbs, basically. He had 
preached. He had worked miracles. He had even raised the dead, so to speak, that people were saying. So Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. He wanted to see Him for Himself. He wanted to find out about Him. And this isn't the work of Zacchaeus. Remember, no one seeks after God. This was the work of the Holy Spirit in Zacchaeus. You know, earthly speaking, he, he has all the money he could ever want. But it's, it's not enough deep down. The Holy Spirit is working in him. The conviction of sin is driving this man to despair for his soul. The Holy Spirit is compelling Zacchaeus to see Jesus. He, it's, he's causing this chief tax collector to realize that I am but a wee little man. And he actually was a wee little man. Of course, he was small in stature. He was short. But when the Holy Spirit is working in someone, height is not a hindrance. When the Holy Spirit is working in someone, he has no problem running ahead and climbing up into a sycamore tree, a mulberry tree. And it was a perfect tree for climbing, a short trunk with branches that are low. So a good climbing tree. And so there he goes, and he's waiting for Jesus rather to come into view. So having been introduced to Zacchaeus, the small sinner, the subject of this now changes to Jesus, the seeking Savior. Look at verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, and let's stop there. When Jesus came to the place, and let's remember there's a crowd around Jesus. They are moving along with Jesus. Many are probably seeking the attention of Jesus. But Jesus stops and He makes eye contact with this guy in the tree. It's not by accident because He calls him by name. He calls him by name. They've never met. They never met. There's nothing in the text to suggest they never they they they, they ever cross paths. And Jesus was not from Jericho; he was passing through Jericho. So, if that's the case, and if Zacchaeus is excluded from the people, there's no reason to think Jesus had ever heard of Zacchaeus. Nevertheless, Jesus is God. All of the power of God dwells in Him fully. And right then and there, God knows Zacchaeus' name. Jesus knew all about him, just like He knows all about you and all about me this morning. Which, by the way, should be a comfort and an alarm to us. It is a comfort because we know that when we trust in Christ... We can never fall out of His love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. He always knows us. He declares the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46, He's always in control. Nothing has ever taken God by surprise. As as one of my friends says, and he probably got it from somebody else, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Because that's just true. Nothing has ever occurred to God. He knows it all. Nothing is taking God by surprise. But also, that means He knows our secrets. That means He knows our secret sins. That that means He knows our evil motives. And as the writer of Hebrews puts it, nothing is hidden from His sight, but all things are laid bare before Him with whom we have to do. 
So Jesus knows all about the chief tax collector, the small sinner, the wee little man Zacchaeus. And he knows all about you this morning as well, beloved. Then as, as if Jesus is calling Zacchaeus by name wasn't enough, not surprising enough, then he says, hurry and come down. He's commanding him. He's giving him orders. He's calling for immediate action. Why? Because they have a divine appointment. For today, I must stay at your house. So what we're seeing here is that the Lord didn't just know He would save Zacchaeus. He knew when He would do it. He knew where He would do it. He knew how He would do it. And this is what John is talking about. This is what Jesus said in John 3.8 to Nicodemus. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, it, it's not for you. It's not for me. It's not for man to know when salvation will take place. But God knows everything. God has decreed everything. God knows when. God knows where. Everyone who will be saved will be saved. Jesus knew for Zacchaeus it would be a matter of, of this day at this time in his house and that's why the word must is there it was determined by God before the foundation of the world that this would happen when it happened where it happened and how it happened Jesus must stay there because that's when and where Zacchaeus is going to have eternal life so like a wee little man who has begun to realize how wee he is Zacchaeus is quick to obey. Quick to obey. I wish we were quick to obey all the time, right? He hurried down and came down and, and received him gladly. And, and we can't overlook that statement. That's a pretty big statement because you have to remember Zacchaeus was unclean. He was considered unclean by his fellow Jews. And as such they would have little to nothing to do with him. They, they would try to avoid Zacchaeus crossing paths with him at all costs. You know, if they see him walking down one side of the street, they'd walk down the other side of the street. They would not want to work, they wouldn't want to be with him. They wouldn't worship with him for sure. And they certainly wouldn't ever consider going into his house. They would never go into an unclean person's house. Yet here is Jesus. And Jesus isn't just clean. He's holy, holy, holy. And he's telling Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. I'm staying at your house. And it, 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 it had to be the first time in Zacchaeus' adult life, at least since he became a tax collector, that he'd ever hosted anyone honorable, that he'd ever hosted anyone clean, respected. So as the shepherd goes and finds the lost sheep and the woman goes and finds the lost coin and the father welcomes back the lost son. Jesus here takes the initiative to save Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus receives him gladly. Or literally, that word is rejoicing. Rejoicing. Now, let's contrast Zacchaeus' response though with the people in the crowd who were supposedly clean. Look at verse 7 again. When they saw it, they all began to grumble saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Contrast the crowd's response with the heart of Jesus and with the rejoicing of Zacchaeus. 
They did not want to see a sinner saved. They grumbled. And, and, and that word for grumble, it's a word in Greek that conveys intense disapproval of what they were seeing. Intense disapproval of what Jesus was doing. Not only in speaking to Zacchaeus as if that's bad enough, but now he's staying the night in his house. Again, I can't stress enough how much of a, a taboo this was in, in first century Judaism. No self-respecting Israelite would be caught dead there. and Not with the chief tax collector, this man who takes their money. So they were disgusted. It reminds me of Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah. After, the, after he's ejected from the belly of the fish, he goes and preaches to Nineveh, and then he's mad because he knows God is going to save some of them. He, he, he didn't want to see the Ninevites saved. And, and a lot of these people didn't want to see anything good happen to Zacchaeus. They didn't want anything to do with unclean people. Sometimes you and I can adopt that attitude. God help us. Unclean people, though, don't make Jesus unclean. Jesus makes unclean people clean. Amen. The thing we've got to realize this morning is, whether we like it or not, all of us come to Jesus unclean. And He's the one who cleanses us. So their opinion of, of Jesus, their opinion of Zacchaeus doesn't matter here. Jesus has a divine appointment to unleash His sovereign saving grace upon this wee little man. Now, Luke doesn't tell us everything Jesus said to him. We actually don't read a presentation of the Gospel in, in what we're seeing here. We don't know all of the words that Jesus said to him. But what we do see is clear. It's crystal clear. And it's that Zacchaeus repented of his sins and entrusted himself to Jesus Christ. Zacchaeus believed in Jesus. And how do we know this? Because of a changed life. Because of a changed life. Beloved, salvation always, always results in a changed life. That is a more controversial statement today than than we'd like to think. But I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe my God is powerful. I believe in the power of the Spirit to sanctify those He makes alive. That is to, to make people holy. To not just give someone a get out of hell free card, but to transfer someone from sin into righteousness. To cause someone to be conformed, like Paul says in Romans 8, to conform to the image of His Son, God's Son, Jesus Christ. Salvation always results in a changed life. And you need to know that this morning. That idea is increasingly under attack in subtle ways this morning, in, in, in Christian culture even. Maybe it's something that, that you, you need to take in because the movement of many churches and, and ministries and we want to sweep that truth under the rug. Pre, you know, it, it's preaching that doesn't address sin. It's, it's preaching that doesn't make dogmatic claims. It's churches that aim to give people an experience they'll want to replicate next week rather than cultivating changed lives that reflect the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. Beloved, I cannot stress enough that salvation always results in a changed life. 
God takes out your heart of stone and He gives you a heart of flesh to use biblical terminology. But it doesn't matter that I'm telling you this. What matters is that this is what the Scriptures clearly teach. This is what the Word of God says. God says, For you shall be holy, for I am holy. And it's not as if we can become holy on our own. He gives us the the means to become holy by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is what's going on with Zacchaeus here. What we see from him shows he was unclean, but he has been made clean. Look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Now, if you go backward in Luke, you go to Luke 9.23, Jesus says there, If you wish to come after Me and be My disciple, you must first deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Me. Whoever wishes to save his life must lose it for my sake. Isn't that what we see here in Zacchaeus? It is. Zacchaeus denies himself. Half of my possessions I will give to the poor. This is not a government program. This is someone out of their own desire. This isn't someone else compelling them to do this. This is someone out of their own desire with a new heart being changed, seeing all that he has and all that he has that he can give to those who lack. This is what the early church did in Acts. Go read the first four or five chapters of Acts and this is what we see the early church doing. 1 John three seventeen says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him How does the love of God abide in him? Zacchaeus had a a closed heart. But God, through the power of His Spirit, through Jesus Christ, ripped his heart open, and now it is free to love God. And if you love God, you're going to love others. You, You can't love God and not love others. Okay? And we see that flowing out of Zacchaeus. And even more, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Beloved, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love keeps no record of wrongs. And I I thank God for that. I praise God for that, that He doesn't keep a ledger of everything I do, not, not, not used to do, everything I do now that's wrong. Okay? I thank God for that. It's been canceled out by the blood of Christ. Praise the Lord. That said, love will seek what's right. Love will seek justice. And I'm not talking about the kind of social justice that that so many seem to be talking about now. A, a, A justice that is defined by the culture. A justice that does keep records of wrongs. A justice that holds on to guilt. That's not really true justice at all. No. Zacchaeus did what he was supposed to do according to the Old Testament. And and, and the crowd would have known this. I'm going to go back to Numbers. Everyone's favorite book is the book of Numbers, right? Uh Numbers chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. And this is not the only place that talks about this. I could go to Exodus 22 if I wanted to, but Numbers chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Well, I'll start at verse 5. 
Because there it says, Then Yahweh the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against Yahweh, that per, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth of it, and give it to him whom he has wronged. So Zacchaeus is seeking to obey the word of God. That's a changed life. It's a changed life. Zacchaeus is seeking justice in the sense he wants to make things right. And then some, by the way, he, if you pay attention, he's giving more than the law requires back. And, and that's more evidence of, of a changed life. Beloved, we need to ask ourselves this morning, you need to ask yourself this morning, whether or not people can see the change in your life. Do people look at you and see a life that is different from the world? Do people look at you and see a life that has been changed by the Holy Spirit? And if not, why not? If not, has your life truly been changed by God? Or are you going through the motions of religion like most of the people in that crowd in Jericho who sneered when Jesus went into Zacchaeus' house? <coughs> Do you not realize this morning that when Jesus saved you, if He has indeed saved you, He went into a very unclean house and made it clean. So how does this end? Because Jesus saves all kinds of sinners. Look at verse 9 and 10. <coughs> and Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because He too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I've got to spend a second on this Abraham thing. Okay, It's important that we understand this biblically. If we want to understand what the Bible is, is meaning when it uses this terminology, we need to understand this. Zacchaeus had been a son of Abraham all his life if we count blood relation, if we count descending from the, the, the body of Abraham. He was a Jew. He was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was an Israelite. But, we also read in Scripture what Paul says in Romans 2. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Also, Luke 3. John the Baptist is baptizing. This is right before Jesus shows up. And you've got Pharisees and Sadducees there, and, and I won't go into that, but they were very, they were not good. Okay, if you're not familiar with them, not good. We'll read more about them. And he says to them, do not think you can say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. Even though they were all related to Abraham, they were Jews too. Why did he say that? Because they did not repent and believe in God truly. On the other hand, Romans 4.17 says, It is by faith in accordance with grace to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is a father of us all, meaning of all us all who believe. And in Galatians 3.7, Paul puts it pretty clearly. Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. So the crowd on the outside is all related to Abraham by blood relation. And they are sneering at the idea of Jesus going into this reprobate's house. 
But Jesus makes a change in his life. He meets Zacchaeus where he is, but he doesn't leave him where he is. Zacchaeus has faith, and so he has become a son of Abraham. Then, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Son of Man. I grew up wondering, what? why don't you say Son of God? That sounds much more impressive. And then I got to studying my Bible a little bit, and I, I, I saw that Jesus refers to Himself as the Son of Man more than any other title. Why? Because it goes back to Daniel chapter 7. Son of Man is a messianic title. It is a title that describes the Messiah. <clears throat> And in Daniel 7, we read, It's the Son of Man who will be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him, and His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. His dominion will be an everlasting dominion. And to refer to Himself this way is a clear way of saying, That's me. I am the Messiah of Daniel 7. I am God and man. He came to seek and to save. That's the purpose. And then who? The lost. Or better yet, those who are ruined. Those who are destroyed. And, you know, we, we say the lost a lot. We use the term, we got to preach it to the lost. We, we want to reach the lost. The word for that in Greek actually is better ruined or destroyed. There is a world out there ruined and destroyed. What are we doing about it? Jesus came to seek and to save them. The one given dominion, glory, and an everlasting kingdom has chosen to save ruined sinners and not give them what they deserve. Zacchaeus didn't deserve to be saved. Zacchaeus deserved death. He was a sinner. He deserved punishment. He deserved eternal destruction. But that's not what he got. This doesn't end in Zacchaeus seeking Jesus, but in Jesus seeking Him not to give him a better life, not so that Zacchaeus can have moral perfection, not so that he can be looked at as a hero, but so that he could become a son of Abraham, a true son of Abraham, to rescue him from eternal destruction, to transfer him out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of God. So the decisive seeker here is not Zacchaeus, it's Jesus. And he still seeks and saves that which was lost today. Beloved, maybe you are in Christ this morning, but you've lost the joy of your salvation. It happens. It happened to King David. Psalm 51, Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and create a, a new heart in me. Maybe you have forgotten that you were, that we are all, we little men, who need the Savior to come into our house and save us. If that's you this morning, I exhort you to confess your sins to God and if need be, confess them to men and follow the example of Zacchaeus. A changed life. Believe in Christ and live the changed life that comes through the power of the Spirit. And on the other hand, maybe you've convinced yourself you're in the faith. You can self-deceive. You can deceive yourself. Maybe you've convinced yourself you're in the faith, but when you measure yourself up against the testimony of Luke 19, 1-10, through 10, 
you have more in common with the crowd than with Zacchaeus, much less Jesus. Beloved, if that is you, then what needs to happen today is that you need to repent of your sins and throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus Christ who left heaven and took on flesh to die on the cross bearing the the, the wrath of the Father against our sins and be raised to life three days later on the third day so that we could live with Him forever. Just as He was crucified and buried and raised on the third day, you need to die to yourself and He will raise you up. But you must come to Him by faith. Not hanging on to the things you do. Not hanging on to, to your religious resume. Not saying, I've gone to church this many years. I go to Sunday school. I, you know, not doing that. Simply trusting in Jesus. Because we are all we little men and women. But we have a Savior who says, I'm coming to your house today. We have hope. So let us live in that hope which pleases the Father. Lived out in the power of the Spirit which glorifies the Son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we respond to the preaching of Your Word, that we may be small in stature spiritually, we thank You for sending Jesus to come to us, to seek us, to save us. I pray, Father, that this morning You might glorify Yourself and how Your people heed Your Word today. Sanctify us, Father. Make us holy like Your Son, Jesus. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.